0: Daniel chapter 2, we looked at the first part of Daniel 2 last week, and we focused on Daniel's faithfulness. His faithfulness to the Lord even in the face of death, the threat of death. Well, today the focus shifts. The focus shifts to God and God's sovereign rule over the nations. Remember that the king... Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the ruler of the world at that time, had had a really bad dream, and nobody could interpret it to him. In fact, nobody could even tell him what it was, what what he demanded. He wasn't happy with this, so he commanded that all the wise men, including Daniel and his friends, be executed. But the Lord's servant did not panic. Daniel displayed prudence, godly prudence. Daniel ran to the Lord in prayer. Daniel responded in praise when the Lord answered his prayer. But he's not out of the woods yet. He still has to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream. He has to tell this angry tyrant that his kingship and his kingdom are not going to last forever. The Lord does everything that he pleases in the heavens and on the earth. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Daniel 2. It's time for Daniel to stand up before the king. Daniel 2.24 is where we'll start. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Brethren, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and thus said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me, excuse me, has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, But in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king, its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom and shall never be destroyed, nor shall the people be left to another people, It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation sure." And King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage, and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, and incense, be offered up to him. The king answered said to, and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect among all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Amen. Bow with me again in prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that tremble at your word. We pray that you would give this through the Holy Spirit. We know we cannot produce it in and of ourselves. Give us the words of life and heart to receive it in Christ's name. Amen. So far in Daniel, the fundamental truth that we've already seen several times is that even though God's people are in exile, even though the temple lies in ruins, God has not left His people. God has not abandoned His promises. The faith and the perseverance and success of Daniel bear witness to this. But even as we hear this, even as we hear this and we thank God that just as he didn't abandon Daniel, he's not going to abandon us in our affliction, even as we hear this, we still have a lot of questions about what's going on with Babylon. God is protecting and preserving Daniel, but what's going on with this wicked and pagan superpower? Babylon was waging war against God's people. Babylon was ruled by a very wicked and godless tyrant. Nebuchadnezzar, he was brutal, he was bloody. Babylon and their depraved culture was sweeping the world and and nothing stood in their way. Can you maybe identify with an Israelite at this time, thinking here, wait a second, I thought the scriptures said that the Lord laughs when kings and peoples plot against him. I thought that the purity and the glory of God's nation was going to crush evil. I thought righteousness was supposed to win. What happened to the kingdom of God? Yes, we can see that God protects his people, but the rise and the triumph of an evil world power doesn't that seem like a setback to God's plan? Where's the justice? There's so much injustice. A wicked man and a wicked ruler are just crushing the world. How does this fit into God's plan to usher in the kingdom of God? Well, when we come to the second half of Daniel chapter 2, we we kind of begin to get some answers to these questions. What we see here uh, is that the exile and Daniel's place in it is not just about Daniel. It's not just about God's people. It's not just about what God is doing in the nation of Israel. We see here, part of this, part of the reason for the exile, part of Daniel's reason for being there, is because what the Lord is doing through Nebuchadnezzar and through the Gentile kingdoms of this world. To Israel, though, it seemed as though if the godly lose power and evil sweeps nations and cultures, that the purposes of God are hindered. But here we see something very different. Here we get a declaration that the triumph, the eventual triumph of the kingdom of God is certain. Here we get an announcement that this triumph of the kingdom of God does not depend upon, nor is it related to the kingdoms of this world. In this, I hope today that you see how some of these questions are not just limited to the ancient Israelites alone. I mean, don't we struggle with some of the same questions in our day? Don't we lament the state of Western civilization, what she's now become? Don't we look to the future with fear and trembling when evil men rise to power? Don't we look out and see the spread of evil in our culture and we think, oh, the purposes of God are being hindered? Don't we look at nations like North Korea or Cuba or Russia or China and, and we shudder to think what would happen if they conquered the world or they set out to conquer the world? brother? this is where Daniel chapter 2 comes in. My prayer this morning is that some of this will cause you to rethink a little bit, where is God's power over the nations being displayed in the world today? And where are our eyes, our eyes fixated upon? What kingdom are we building? Because I think Daniel chapter 2 answers a lot of these questions for us. Now today we're going to focus on three things, but really we're going to spend most of our time on the second thing, so just to warn you up front. But I want to show you three things here, three things this morning. We see a God-centered proclamation, we see a God-centered revelation, and we see a God-centered adoration. Proclamation, revelation, adoration. First, I want us to consider a God-centered proclamation and here i want you to see how god-centered daniel is throughout this ordeal remember daniel's life is at stake remember that he prayed to god to save his life and god revealed the king's dream to him where we pick up in the story then is in verse 24 he goes to arioch and he says i will show the king the interpretation but look at how Arioch responds in verse twenty-five. He tells the king, "I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king of the interpretation." Notice the subtle way in which Arioch is trying to take some of the credit here. Like Daniel found Arioch, it wasn't the other way around. But Arioch says, "No, no, hey, king, I got the guy." I want you to notice this because Ariok, in some sense, embodies how it is that the godly get ahead in the world. Excuse me, the ungodly. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. It's kind of the way of the world, right? You've got to fight for all the credit that you can get. You've got to take credit for everything that you can, make sure to get ahead. This is kind of a set in a contrast to Daniel because how does Daniel respond when the king tries to give him credit? Does Daniel say, Hey, I got, the king, I got the interpretation for you, king, right here. Well, notice in contrast to Arioch in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream? And Daniel could have easily said, Well, yeah, I can. I got it right here. But notice what he says in verse 28. No man can do this. No man, no enchanter, not even me can reveal to you this dream. But there is a God in heaven. That he follows this up in verse 30 by saying, essentially, this mystery has been revealed to me, but not because of any wisdom that I have. This is the contrast between Arioch and Daniel. It's subtle, but Daniel, we are to see, takes every opportunity in order to exalt God and to put the focus on God and to defer any credit in himself. Daniel knows. He's just an instrument in God's hands. He knows that God is the center and the hero of these circumstances. And, brethren, I bring this out for us this morning. Um, It's important for us in in a couple of ways. In one sense, it shows us the author's purpose throughout this entire narrative. And, And I want to emphasize this because it's important we tend to read the story of Daniel and we really focus on two things, typically. Uh, we might focus on dare to be a Daniel and we might focus on his example and his obedience, which is good in some sense. But the other tendency is maybe we read this and we start focusing on the dreams. We start speculating about all the end times stuff. Right? What's going to happen? What does this mean for the future? But right here, we should see the author's purpose to focus. Our focus ought to be upon God. God gave the dream. God gave the interpretation. God brought about these circumstances. And more than that, when Daniel knows the dream, what does he do? He breaks out and prays. and when Dan, assuming Nebuchadnezzar, hears the interpretation, what does he do at the end of the chapter? He falls down on his feet on his face and worships God. That's the point. That's the call that the author, how the author wants us to respond as well. To see that God is the center of all this, and that no matter what we walk away with, that worship and praise is the ultimate and most foundational, most fundamental response of the faithful heart. i just ask you, too, in your own life, are, are the particular circumstances of your life, Whatever they may be, the difficult circumstances, the difficult people, the questions, the uncertainties, the heartaches. Have you, you, as you go through this, have you forgotten what is most fundamental? That God is sovereign, that God brought it about for a purpose, and that the most basic response is not figuring out what God is doing, or even figuring out what you're supposed to do in a particular situation. The most fundamental response is worship is to understand who he is and who you are by comparison. Daniel and even the pagan, unbelieving Nebuchadnezzar rightly see the God-centeredness of everything that's going on. They set a model, an example for us. But the second reason why this God-centeredness is important for us to see it's because Daniel also provides us a model to follow for how we are to conduct ourselves toward unbelievers. In contrast to the self-focused, self-promoting ways of this world, we too must take every opportunity to exalt God, to direct the gaze of those around us, not to us and our brilliance and our faith or our conduct or our wisdom but to direct the gaze of unbelievers to Him and to publicly proclaim Him before all the world. That's what faithfulness looks like when we are in exile, when we are living in a godless culture. Last week we saw Daniel responded to these things with with prudence, prayer, and praise. Well, the fourth and final one here is important. Proclamation as well. We too are to take God's word, the revelation of God's wisdom, which is about Him and not about us ultimately, and we are to proclaim it, we are to bear witness to it, even in the face of danger, even in the face and threat of death. Because that's our calling. And that's how we'll see in a moment, that's how God's kingdom advances in this world. It's not Daniel's might, or Daniel's wisdom, or Daniel's ingenuity that brings the king to his knees, the ruler of the world at that time. It's the God-centeredness of this proclamation. Secondly, and we'll spend most of our time here, a God-centered revelation. A God-centered revelation. Now, Just let me warn you a little bit. You might want to buckle your seatbelt. We've got a lot to cover. If I talk fast, it's because we have a lot to cover. Um, But hang with me. We'll bring it all together in the end. But we need to see the God-centered revelation here in the middle part of this chapter, the interpretation of the dream. Beginning in verse 31, Daniel first tells the king what he dreamed. And then he moves on to tell the king what his dream means. Of course, there's a lot of details we can't cover, but I want to summarize and do the best I can to give you, of course, the big picture. The dream centers on a great image. Uh, Picture an idol. Picture a giant statue of sorts. It's described as magnificent, glorious, and even frightening. It's so amazing. It's like... The Tower of Babel, that reaches to the heavens, except it's in the image of a man. And in verse 32, we read that the head of this image was fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its middle and thighs were bronze, its legs um, uh, were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly clay. But despite how magnificent and well-constructed this image is with all of these precious Uh, metals and materials in verse 34 we're told of a stone that was cut by no human hand it struck the image um, at its feet and it broke the image in pieces and it all came crashing down you can probably imagine that there's no shortage of interpretations down through history of what this means and what all these various parts represent One thing we know for sure is that the head of the image, the head of gold, represents Nebuchadnezzar. That's what Daniel says in 38. But the silver and the bronze and the iron mixed with clay is not defined for us. So, I want to give you a few options for what this might be. Uh, Traditionally, most interpreters see this as representing four kingdoms. In fact, that's what Daniel kind of goes on to say, is four kingdoms here. We have the Babylon Empire, which is the head of gold. We know that right after that, the Medo-Persian Empire followed, which is silver. And then, of course, you have um, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire that followed, which is bronze. And then the mighty Roman Empire, which is the iron mixed with clay. That's how most people down through church history have understood this passage. This is, of course... Kind of how history played out. And we even know when we think about the rock being Jesus Christ, uh, the rock that the church is built upon, the rock that, that, that outlasts all other kingdoms, we know that his death and resurrection came during the Roman Empire, which is the last kingdom, which is kind of what Daniel says here. It all seems to make sense. Um, but I will say this, this view is not without its challenges. I don't think it lines up perfectly with history. And particularly, I find it odd, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's response when Daniel tells him this. If this is what it meant, it's kind of odd for him to bow down and bless God. Right? If Daniel's saying, look, your kingdom is about to be overthrown by another kingdom. uh, That doesn't really seem to fit Nebuchadnezzar's response. But another view here, I think, has a little bit more merit. Um, uh, another interpretation is that this fourfold statue represents the fourfold regimes of Babylon itself. We see this even in the book of Daniel itself, because after Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 5 comes Belshazzar. And then Darius the Mede comes in chapter 6. And then Cyrus is mentioned at the end of chapter 6. Four strong regimes of the same dynasty. Represented by various parts, but all part of the same image, the same dynasty. Here then, the message would be Babylon, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, your kingdom's not going to stand forever. It has feet of clay, and maybe Nebuchadnezzar could say, well, okay, there's four other kind of dynasties to follow me. That's how he can, why he responds and prays and worships. Also, we can consider that during the fourth reign, the reign of Cyrus, the decree to end the exile came. So, you know, Israel returning to Jerusalem, the reestablishment of God's kingdom can represent the stone that begins to grow in the fourth regime. It all seems to line up perfectly. However, I will say, even here, you knew this was coming, right? Uh, There are a few problems with this. I'm not sure that that's exactly what it means. Ultimately, I don't take either of these positions in a hardline sense, because basically we're not told. We're just not given enough details. We're not told in this story, in this narrative, what the rest of the image refers to and I and I think we run into problems when we begin to go beyond the text my emphasis to you today is I want you to see that God's word is relevant just as much to you as it was to the 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 Israelites at that time If it only referred to the Babylon regime or the kingdoms that immediately followed after it, then it would be easy for us to read this and say, well, it doesn't really have much to do with us. That's back then. We can maybe go to the book of Revelation to figure out where we're at now. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's right. I believe that God is revealing a general philosophy of history rather than a precise set of circumstances. And, and I believe that we can find here really an application to any kingdom in any regime, not just those back then. I know us post-Enlightenment Westerners don't like it put this way, but if somebody asked me, does this refer to the Babylon regime? I would say yes. And then if somebody said in the very next breath, does this refer to the Persian, Greek, and Roman regime to follow? I would say Yes. But if somebody said to me, does this refer in some sense to the nations of the world right now? I would say yes as well. I think there's a general philosophy that it meets up with history, but it's also true in a very general sense as well. Why is that? Well, now I've got to defend that. Because the focus of this dream and the image really isn't on Babylon. The focus of the dream is on the stone. The kingdom that God establishes. The stone that crushes them all. It's a God-centered revelation. It's centered on God, not really the historical details. When we get caught up on those, we miss the point, which is our God and Savior in the forefront of the story. So with this in mind, let me walk through this a little bit with you. Note a few things. Note that while the kingdoms are different, they are all part of the same body, the same image. Note as well that they are bright and glorious to the eye. They seem to be made of the strongest materials known to man, but they have a fatal flaw. They have feet of clay. They will not endure. And while we don't know all the details, we do know that the head refers uh, uh, is a reference to Babylon. And we do know that the stone that crushes the other kingdoms is the kingdom of God. The beginning and the end are clear to us. And that's where our focus must be. God's sovereignty over history and the eventual triumph of His kingdom. That's our big takeaway. But let me also say that this dream gives us perspective on world history as a whole in this way. In verse 37, we're told that God himself has given Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, his rule. Isn't that amazing? If you stop and think about that, God, through Daniel, tells Nebuchadnezzar, Look, I've given you all the power. You can do whatever you want in the world, you can do whatever you want, even with the animals. You haven't built this on your own. This is not your own strength, your own ingenuity, your own voting block, right? Your own campaigning, your own lobbying, your own warfare, your own strength, your own glory. Everything you have, God has given it to you. This, of course, is going to be spelled out in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar's second dream as well. We'll return to this in a few weeks. But just stop for a moment and think about that. Think about it. Whether we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, whether we're talking about North Korea, whether we're talking about Russia or China, whether we're talking about the United States of America, this passage teaches us that those who are in power are there because God put them there. And He put them there for a very good reason. And he intends by putting them there to accomplish his will and his desire and his purpose. We can never forget that. Whether things are going great and we have the best ruler in the world and justice reigns, or whether things are going horrible and our nation is being flushed down the toilet, ultimately, God is in control. And that's what the Scriptures continually call us back to. Not to put our hope in man. No matter who rules and reigns. But to know that it's in God's hands and the comfort that comes from that. Yes, we we vote. Yes, we lobby. Yes, we pray. Yes, we long to see righteous rulers in the land. But when we have done all of our duty, we let those things go. And we rest in the comfort that God's in control. But getting back to the point at hand, another thing that's very key about this image, and this is related, so hang with me. I want you to notice how verse 37 and 38 parallel how Adam is described in the creation account. Look at verse 37 and 38 again. He's a king of kings. And God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory. And Nebuchadnezzar, into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. Think about how Adam was made in the image of God. Radiating the glory of God. Like the head of gold. Same imagery invoked here. And think about Adam was given a kingdom and a dominion and an authority over all creation. The beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven. God gave him that rule himself. And yet, despite his lofty position, Adam proved to have feet of clay. He fell. What did he do? crumbled. He returned to the dust. Even the regimes that followed Adam, his children and his children's children's children, they too ultimately did not endure. Death reigned. Every successor of Adam, everyone who followed, eventually was brought back down to the dust. I believe this dream teaches us something profound about the entire human endeavor. The entire human endeavor. Think about Babylon. Babylon represents in Scripture the city of man. The epitome of man's dreams and goals and aspirations and achievements in and of itself. The great image, then, in this dream perfectly describes human history. Though gifted and blessed and exalted by God in the beginning, unparalleled glory, unparalleled dominion, in the end, division and destruction and death inevitably and always comes. No matter what we're able to accomplish, everything eventually returns to the dust. The point to Nebuchadnezzar, the point to us as well. Earthly kingdoms, no matter how great, no matter how powerful, they will all eventually crumble. And we see this with Babylon. We see this with the dynasties of Persia and Greece and Rome. Do you think we won't see it with America as well? Whether we're talking about a business, whether we're talking about an enterprise, a city, a nation, a culture. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes. No matter what you accomplish, man, eventually it all crumbles. Nothing lasts. Nothing is forever. The rise and fall of the kingdoms of this world, far from being an accident of history, far from being something by chance, is part of the sovereign working and plan of God. There is an expiration date on every human endeavor and every human kingdom. Adam failed in his creation mandate. And that has a trickle-down effect upon everything we put our hands to do. But this is where the hope and comfort, the fundamental point of this dream comes in. There is another kingdom. It's not what you build. It's not what I build. It's not what Putin builds. There is another kingdom, and it will not fade away. This passage invokes Psalm 1 and 2. The earthly kingdoms will eventually become like chaff that the wind drives away, Daniel says, verse 35. That's Psalm 1. But then, in verse 44, we're told of a stone that shall break into pieces all the other dominions. That's Psalm 2. The reign of the Messiah. You will break the nations like a rod of iron. This is the kingdom that God sets up. This is the kingdom that God builds. This is the kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the kingdom that is not made with human hands. It's not furthered by human endeavors. But it's a, but it's a kingdom that strikes the nations of this world and becomes like a mountain that fills the whole earth kind of like a city that comes down from above as the earth passes away with a roar this is a stone the kingdom that is not made with human hands this is a stone a kingdom that's not to be equated with the kingdoms of this earth it's different It's qualitatively different. It's not made with gold or silver. It's got totally different ingredients. Kings of this earth may have all the political accomplishments of gold and silver. May have all the humanitarian achievements. May have all the wisdom and the power and the might. And the prosperity. But all that's needed is a strategic blow to the right place. And it will crumble because the kingdoms of man are only dust. They're clay. Think about the fact that this kingdom isn't made from human hands. That's a point of the passage. It's a different quality. We must not look at the earthly kingdoms of this world as if they represent the kingdom of God. Again, a totally different material and quality. A different ingredient. They are separate. That's why we believe in separation of church and state. Not because it's pragmatic. Because that's what the Bible teaches. The kingdoms do not mix. And when they mix, they, they undermine both. They're both corrupted. One is physical and one is spiritual. And we need to keep them separate. Notice as well, the stone falls vertically from above. The picture here is the incarnation. Christ came down from heaven. The true image of God. The true glory of God. The one who exercised true dominion and true rule over all the earth. And the stone descending from heaven brings with it the city of the new Jerusalem. The city that comes down from above. The city whose builder and maker is God. Brethren, the message here is we don't build the kingdom. We don't bring the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't come through our earthly endeavors. It doesn't come through our kingdom building or our kingdom work. The kingdom of this kingdom The rule of this kingdom also is not found in the rulers in the kingdoms of this world. And yet the hope is it's going to crush every other kingdom. And it's going to grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth. This then is, is the last word of human history. Whether we're talking about the image of Adam in all of man's endeavors, whether we're talking about the kings and kingdoms of the nations of this earth. Everything will not stand, but Christ's kingdom will crush all and endure till the end. Brethren, the message to us is clear. To Nebuchadnezzar, to us, to all those who hear. The message is that all of those who place their trust in man and kings of this earth and in earthly kingdoms shall be shattered by the rock of ages. No earthly kingdom is safe, no earthly endeavor is safe. Nothing will last forever. And yet that gives us hope, and that gives Daniel hope. It gives us hope when we are ruled by evil tyrants. It's not going to last forever. Praise God. But it also tempers our hope when we, have, when we live in a wonderful kingdom, maybe Christendom as it were. Oh, it will not last forever either. My hope should not be here. My hope should be in the kingdom from above. And it's a call for us to direct our gaze higher and to fix our eyes upon the rock that comes down from heaven. The king and his eternal kingdom. Brethren, that's the God-centered revelation that we see in this passage. I'm going to come back at the end and wrap all this up, but I need to conclude with a very brief third and final point here uh, as we work toward the end of this passage. God-centered proclamation. God-centered revelation. God-centered adoration. A God-centered adoration. What do we... What, I mentioned it before, but how does Nebuchadnezzar respond when he hears this? He falls on his face and pays homage to Daniel, verse 46. Literally in the Hebrew, he worshiped him. He confesses in verse 47 that the Lord is God of gods and Lord of kings. And then he gives Daniel and his friends a huge promotion. Uh, now be careful, we'll, we'll consider this more in the coming weeks, uh, but don't read this as if Nebuchadnezzar was converted. Uh, He was in awe. He confesses God as God of gods. He treats Daniel kind of like a representative of a deity of some sort, a priest. But he doesn't like become a monotheist here. He doesn't reject the Babylon gods, um, even if he sees the Lord as Lord over them all. Uh, Nevertheless, though, he does model for us how we're called to respond. When we think about world history, when we think about future events, God does not reveal those things to us so that we might know all the mysteries and foresee everything to come, he reveals those things to us that we might adore him. And that's the primary thrust of this passage. That we would respond as well and bow down and ascribe to God the glory and the rule of the one who is and is to come and reigns forever over the kings of this earth. In other words, we are to see that no matter what today holds, no matter what the future holds, God reigns right now. And it's not so much of what will happen that is to lead us to worship. No, no. It's who controls the happenings. Who He is. That is what brings us, ought to bring us to our knees in adoration. So all God-centered proclamation of His Word, all God-centered revelation of His truth is intended to lead to God-centered adoration for who He is. Well, brethren, I know we've covered a lot of ground. And there's so much more that could be said. But I want to draw this to a conclusion. Try to bring this all together. If your head's spinning a little bit, don't miss kind of the end here. Hang with me. At the end of the day, we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the stone spoken of here. He is the rock. Jesus said Himself upon this rock, the confession that He is the Christ, I will build my church. Jesus taught that everyone who hears His word It's like the the wise man who built his house on the rock. The Apostle Peter identifies, we heard it earlier from 1 Peter 2, Christ is the rock, Christ is the chief cornerstone. The Apostle Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the rock from which water flowed for Israel in the desert. Most specifically is Luke 20.18. Jesus quotes Daniel here. He cites this passage. He applies it to himself. And he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, when it falls on, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus emphasizes that there's no middle ground. The gospel will either save you or it will condemn you. It will either lead you to repentance or it will become a stumbling block block upon which you fall to your ultimate ruin. Who is sufficient for these things? But the true irony of Christ's words here in Luke 20, the stone that crushes the nations doesn't just crush the pagan, wicked, Gentile nations of this world. You know Jesus' point? You know why he was crucified for saying stuff like this? That stone crushed the nation of Israel as well. The nation of God's word, the Christian nation. The nation that had God's law and God's worship, the epitome of a Christian national nation, Christian nationalism. They stumbled over the rock. It crushed them. We read it from Isaiah 8 earlier. It became a snap and a, tra- a snare, a snap and a trap and a snare to the nation of Israel. because the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world do not mix. And you know what? Let me just say that every Christian nation ever to rise in the history of this Earth has always ended in apostasy and failure. That's why the real importance of Jesus' words here in Luke 20 is that He goes on then to say how it is that the kingdom of God advances through His sacrificial suffering and death. Christ's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world that advance through political power, that advance through earthly conquests, that advance through human endeavors. The kingdom of God only advances... From the point of weakness and humility and suffering and death. And Christ's life and ministry sets the pattern for us. Daniel's life and ministry sets the pattern for us. He shows us how the kingdom advances. He proclaims the heavenly word to the unbelieving world from a point of exile and suffering. He announces the rock that comes outside of us, down from heaven, and through this weak and foolish message, He brings the ruler of the world to his knees. He falls on his face. Historians speculate that nobody in the history of the world has had more power than Nebuchadnezzar. This is the evidence of God's rule. This is the evidence of God's kingdom. This is how kingdoms, the kingdom of God advances and fills the entire earth. The gospel is the power of God under salvation. It's the announcement of that that breaks the hardest of human hearts and cripples even the most brutal king and rulers of this world. And if this wasn't enough for you, think also of Jesus before Pilate. He says the very same thing that Daniel says. He tells Pilate, you would have no authority unless God gave it to you. And then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would take up a sword and try to defend me. And that as well, we see that God used a wicked and pagan, a horribly wicked man, Pilate, to crucify the Lord of glory, the true image of God, the worst blow to the kingdom of God by all human evaluation. But God uses that to build and advance His kingdom according to His will. Don't you think that if God can use Pilate to usher in our salvation, that He can use the wicked rulers of our age as well? Which kingdom are you fixated upon? Which kingdom are you worried about? Which kingdom causes you anxiety and fear and trembling? Which kingdom are you trying to build? The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is only found in the church. We, advance in the advancement of, uh, we participate in the advancement of this kingdom as we participate in the life and ministry of the gospel proclamation of the church. And this is how God fulfills His plan to bring all things in heaven and earth under Christ's rule. Ephesians 1.19 This is how we receive, not build, but receive a kingdom that can never be shaken. Hebrews 12.18 And this is how Revelation 11.15 The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Jesus Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Brother, may God give us the grace this morning to see Christ rule in Christ's kingdom, not with the eyes of sense, but with the eyes of faith, because it's right here in the ministry of the gospel. This is how he advances his purposes and is building his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.